All right, guys, welcome to Icons, Influencers, and Inspirations. Marvelous, I'm pumped up today because we've got two guys that I think check all three of the boxes. Amen to that. Because they, they've got vastly different personalities from my experience, but two giant chop busters. I'll say that. I could say ball breakers. Too, with <laughs> but uh, guys that have lived some incredible experiences and uh, we're excited to have them. I want to welcome Errol Dobler, and he is a former Navy SEAL and also a former FBI tactical SWAT team member. And his commander in that unit, my man, Mr. James DiStefano, who was the tactical commander in that unit as well. And so we're going to talk today, Marvelous, about certainly their experiences as they grew up and as they got into their field of, of expertise and professions and how it shaped and molded them. And, uh, and I think we just chop it up and have some fun over here. So guys, welcome to Icons. Appreciate you joining us. So I, uh, we have to confess, James, because you and I have history. We go back mm -hmm. about a decade, maybe a little bit longer. Um, mm -hmm. We met, and it's amazing that we didn't meet previously because we we're both graduates of the hallowed halls of Bergen Catholic High School. And <laughs> shout out to the Bergen Catholic group. No, by the way, number five in the nation preseason for high school football. There you go. So, so props to my man Vito. Fantastic. And uh, they got great leadership in the football program right now. Vito Campanelli is the real deal. And so I'm excited for that. But uh, you and I met in Cornerstone at St. Elizabeth's Church. Shout out to Father Stephen, another Bergen Catholic alum. We got spread <laughs> all over the place. And so we had a chance to go through Cornerstone a little over 10 years ago together. And and I have to tell you that you you made an impression on me, an indelible impression on me, not just because of the, how you led a group of disparate, disconnected men into an incredible unity, a brotherhood throughout that cornerstone experience, but just because of the way you conduct yourself. And, and I kid you all the time, because I love to break you down, <laughs> but I have, you know, immutable respect for who you are and how you live your life. So talk a little bit about for you, how you and Errol met in the first place. Like, how did you guys get together? Oh, that, you know, that's an easy one. I had been in the uh, New York office. It had been my, my second assignment in, in the bureau. And I had been on the SWAT team for a number of years. The SWAT team had just undergone a, a tremendous change for the better. When you talk about leadership, leadership was at the core of that change and, and all of the positive things that kind of cascaded off of that. And I'm sure we'll hit on some of those subjects as, as we push along. But I was very fortunate that within the 45-man construct, I was the leader of a 15-man team, the Alpha team. And uh, in about, what was it, 2002, Errol, 2003? Um, came on board. something like that, yeah. yeah he came on board with us. I mean, you know, going through selection process, we had all the, the, the background and the data on these guys. And then once they qualified, then it's kind of like the NBA draft. You know, the team leaders and the assistant team leaders sit down and go through who scored where and then make all kinds of wheeling and dealing on who you've got to select. And I, and I was very fortunate you know, that I was able to, uh, to grab him. We connected right away. We're very like-minded individuals and it was a tremendous add to the team I already had, which was very strong with his addition. It was only, it was only stronger. And, uh, you know, as I said, we connected very naturally there and maintained the friendship for, you know, going on 20 years now. I love it. It's a little more sophisticated than choosing upside in the school. <laughs> You know, <laughs> not much. Yeah, not much. <laughs> not much. Not, not much. Not right. much. I'm curious though, when when you because you have all of that detail and all of that background on all these candidates, 
What was it about Errol that, that, you know, stood out for you and you really made you gravitate towards selecting him? Look, I, I hate to be five minutes into this and be just pouring on all, all of these positive things about him. But no, no, you're going to build him up in the, in the panic. <laughs> yeah, we can actually take it away later on. It's the lead up, Jeff. But, but, but you did tell us coming into this to, to be relaxed and to be honest. And the honest truth is he, he was a stud, you know, physically as you'd imagine. But you don't get, you know, through the Naval Academy successfully. They, they don't hand out those diplomas down there very easily. You know, he excelled in leadership, obviously. After driving a boat for two years, lives out his dream, becomes a Navy SEAL, you know, and eventually shares all that talent with us. I mean, and then the character piece, that's the, that's the one for me. You know, there were lots of guys that could shoot, run, you know, move weights and fight. But it's, it's the character piece, the cultural fit, and that's, that's another big thing in Leader 193 that, that we really focus on. And I think ultimately that was the one. If I had to say one, it, it was the character and the culture fit, you know, for, for us that, that made that decision easy. Yeah, that makes sense. And when you think about, you know, one thing you said that really stood out to me just now was that he was able to come in and, and share with you some of the tactics, strategies, and intel that he mm -hmm. gathered throughout his Navy SEAL career. And I think that's, at the, uh, at the core, that's a, a fundamental imperative in terms of improving things, taking from different disparate backgrounds to help mm -hmm. you guys improve on the SWAT side. Errol, mm -hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss it over to you. What was it about Jim that caught your attention? Well, besides his illustrious high school baseball career, which I can't believe we didn't. <laughs> yeah, <it was. laughs> I got one on that, Errol, don't worry. Yeah, I'm still picking the splinters out of my ass. <laughs> it's a solid 215 career batting average. <laughs> His nickname was Mendoza, just for the record. His nickname. <laughs> but the, I think the Jim's right. You know, because when I got to the team, the SWAT team, I looked at it and I was like, this is solid. I'm not really sure what happened before I got there. And it was the transformation happened maybe a year or two before I got there. So it was, it was fresh. So yeah, I, I had a good background coming in, but make no mistake, when I joined Alpha, you know, which was Jim's section, they were firing on all cylinders. Mm -hmm. So maybe all I did was come in and just add some confirmation to the way things were, were happening already. Like, you know, this is, this is, this is a solid team. This is the best section. And Alpha was the best section for me because me and Jim do think very, we're very like-minded, especially in the combat training about let's just, when we're working, let's just work. We can have a couple laughs in between, but let's save the laughs for afterwards. And so yeah. that was, that wasn't the other sections. Now I'm not saying that they were, you know, jerking around the whole time. They weren't, they were working hard, but nobody worked as hard as we did. And nobody had that attitude. So I was just a fit for that section under Jim's leadership. The extra, the extra stuff about, you know, we're going to fight. We're going to, you know, it was all just good. You know, it was all just, it all felt very comfortable to me. And he, he set some very, very specific uh, guidelines for standards that if you didn't meet, you, you heard about them. And I heard about them once, you know, once or twice, because I, I like to mess around a little bit and you give me the side eye, like, what was yeah. that? I've got this side eye. That was it. So like I said, I, you know, my background is great and I'm super proud of it, but I did not. All I did was add fuel to an already raging fire of excellence. 
Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Though Jim, Jim is he is a taskmaster. I mean that in the best sense of words of the word. You know, I can think back to a cornerstone. You know, the the morning after the, the, the we set the tone because contextually, the night of cornerstone where everybody meets and congregates initially. You know, we're we're working through a keg and a lot of food from Market Basket, and most of the guys are are probably overserving themselves. And then the next morning. Who's up at like 4.30 in the morning out there doing kettlebell drills, but one Jim DiStefano. <laughs> saying to myself, holy crap, there's one of the reasons why I could never have been on Jim DiStefano's team. One of the many reasons why I would have been disqualified, but he does have that that sense of purpose and he does set high standards. But you know what I love about you, Jimmy, is that you, you set the standard for yourself first, that you will not hold anybody else to a standard that you're not willing to meet and or exceed on your own. And when you talk to me about Errol, you said the very same things about him. Did you feel uh -huh. as though Errol was almost like the wingman that you were looking for that you, you needed to drive even further improvement in your teams? Look, every time we had an opportunity to draft someone on the team was an opportunity to either go up or go down. Right. And, and I had a very specific sense of what I was looking for every time we went through a draft. And, you know, Errol and I have tossed this around and, and it's an important thing that we share with our clients. Not everyone is Errol. Not everyone is a player. You know, we're, we, all of us, we, we know each other, at least to some degree, have played sports of various kinds in the, in the past. We know what a position player is. And part of leadership, and we, he and I have talked about this numerous times, is not only to be able to find they, you know, the, the stud like him, but also how do you best utilize that position player brings maybe not the same complete package, but excellence within maybe a more concentrated area. How do you then plug them into a team, as he said, that's firing on all cylinders and use them to also get you to the next level. And that's something he helped me with too. We, we identified who those guys were. Phenomenal guys, much better in certain respects than I was, but had very specific talents that really helped drive our team overall to mission success time and time again. It makes sense because, and I think about this now, you guys have almost, you flipped roles where you are now Errol's wingman at Leader 193. Errol, when you think about, you know, working and guiding clients through the 193 platform, how important is it for them as you talk about the acquisition and development of talent to develop in almost uh, what Jim was saying before, an avatar or a profile of who it is and what it is that you're looking for from people that, that are going to join a, a particular team in a company. Yeah. The, so when I was looking to hire somebody as a coach for Lear 193, my list was about two people long, but Jim was the first one on it. And it's not because I don't know anybody. I know a lot of people. You know, there is the other guy who was on the list I worked with in the SEAL teams. I couldn't find him, but I mm -hmm. recently found him. But it, it's easy just to get somebody to come in, teach him the leader one night, three way. You know, here's how we do it. What I wanted was somebody who fit what I thought the brand was. Right. A very, a very interesting background, a very leadership centric background, but somebody who was a high performer and most importantly, somebody who was not going to be afraid to figuratively punch a client in the nose when they need it, because it's easy to let sometimes, you know, people are paying you for a service and maybe they get lazy and you're at a, you're at a tipping point 
right there. Like, okay, well, how much do I get on this client who's paying me and risk insulting them? Or do we do our job and be honest and let the chips fall? And that it's just simply not an easy thing to do. You know, I struggle with it, but I do it. And I knew Jim would do it. And I just had to remind him. And I still remind him because I think he does it anyway, that don't forget, we're allowed to, again, figuratively punch these folks in the nose because that's really what they should be paying us for. So it was an easy fit. It was a, Jim was an easy fit for me. Now, in true Jim fashion, I had to sell him. You know, he didn't have any trepidation about working with me as an individual, but he wanted to know more about what is this business you're doing and why should I attach my name to it? And I had to sell him. And, and I did. But you know, that was, that validated for me picking the right guy. So right now, Jim, so we do, we send out, you know, surveys to everybody and, and you know, so we get all that feedback. Sure. And I, I've got to be careful about how many clients I give Jim, because right now he's starting to exceed, you know, my number from zero to 10. Where are you? It's like people are rating Jim a little bit better. I, I might have to hire him. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> Right. But again, but again, that's, that, that was it, right? It, it, there's got, I had something in mind that I needed, right. That I wanted and Jim, Jim hit every wicket and is, and then proving, you know, to be the perfect choice. Well, you raised two awesome points. I think the, the first thing I want to go back to is you said, you know, at times where a client may get lazy or distracted or lose focus that you got to go in there and, and, you know, not literally, but figuratively punch them in the nose and kind of give them an alpha breaker to get their attention again. Talk to me about, you know, what you do with a client and how you're effectively able to get them back on track or regain focus and attention where they need it most. Well, you know, when we talk about the leader one night, three way, right? That's what we call it, leadership through process and wellness. And it's a process that I developed based on my experience. It's a problem solving process, which is essentially a leadership process, right? Here's how you look at everything. And here's how you break it down. And there is no challenge that you will find that you'll find that won't be solved somewhere in that process. It's just, right. it's played out. And I knew that to be true. So one of the things that we preach is you can't hold someone accountable if they don't know what they're supposed to be accountable to. So before somebody joins our course, we make it very, very clear what they're going to be held accountable to each week. We get on a pre-call. We get on a pre-call before the week starts, so they know exactly what they're supposed to do during that week, and then what we're going to talk about at week's end. So when they don't do it, we simply just say, "Question: What didn't you understand about the way we said we were doing business?" Right. Now you can phrase it however you want. I usually just phrase it that way because sometimes I'm too tired to use those good soft skills, yeah. but, but that's it. And, and every time to form, they say, I'm sorry, you're right. Yep. So sometimes we'll just say, well, we're not, we're not having our call this week because it will be a waste of time. We're pushing right. it out. We're going to redo the week. You know, sometimes we give them a little bit of slack. If generally they're good, you know, they're doing what they're supposed to like, okay, mm -hmm. but that's it. It is, it is setting the expectations up front, making it clear. Here's how we do business. Here's what you signed up for. And these are our parameters. And if you don't meet them, we're going to ask you why that is accountability. Right. I'm going to ask you why, let you give me the answer. Okay. 
So that's it. And that's how we do it. It's as yeah. simple as that. And that is, that is the methodology that we try to share with the people who come to us. If you, you, if you set it, make it clear and you say it over and over again, when they don't do it, I don't have to give you the specific thing that you did wrong. All I have to do is go, what didn't you understand about how we say right. mm -hmm. they get it. So that's it. That's how we do it. Hey, and Errol, once they verify that they understand, how do you bring them back to the recognition of the mission, right? Like, how do you put them back? What action steps do you take to get them back on course if they do fall off? Great question. Yeah. It, well, again, it's because we make it very clear what we're doing, what our mission is, and it goes from week to week. So what we don't do is get on a call with somebody. Okay. What do you want to talk about today? I used to do that. I did that initially. And what I found was I was always coming back to my process anyway. And then I just said, you know what? We're going we're gonna to make this thing very, very strict. We're going to make it very focused. Each week is going to be a specific week. So when we do it that way, when we do the leadership prep work up front, I don't have to remind them or, or, or kind of steer them. I just say, okay, this was this week's topic. Let's get back on it. Okay. And that's also a really good way to make sure we're staying focused in, in conversation, right? Because there's a lot of things, especially as we get deeper into the course, there's a lot more things to talk about. And it's incumbent upon Jim and I to say, no, no, no. This week, we're talking about the planning process. Okay. We can talk about that other stuff, you know, in week six. So that's how we just keep it very focused and very specific. And it, and it works. It works. So that's, that's how we get them back on track. It's just what we laid out in advance. Yeah, I think Absolutely. it sounds like, you know, trust the process, right? The old, the old man, cliche, because it's true, right? It's yeah. absolutely Sandy, true. It goes, it goes into what they say about, you know, in the, in the course, actually leaders give orders, not suggestions, mm -hmm. right? you know, so you guys are literally making sure that they are staying on task by the orders and the assignments and the chain of command that you sign. You know, you said something else, Earl, that I thought was saying the second point that I wanted to go back to was you said that you had to sell Jim in true gym fashion on the opportunity. Talk a little bit about that. Like, you know, when you're talking about selling Jim, what was that like? And, and what were Jim's concerns or what were his questions in terms of things that he needed to check off in his mind that this was the right opportunity for him to use his skills? Well, it, I wasn't surprised. He didn't catch me off guard. Again, I worked with Jim for a long time. <laughs> and we're going on a 20 year relationship. So I knew that guy's question everything, right? Well, you know, yeah, so you know, and I just, and there was plenty of times in, when I worked for Jim on the SWAT team that he would ask my opinion on things and I'd give it and he'd go, okay, I got you. And he went the other way, right? which is fine. Right. Cause he's getting, he's getting information that he wants. He's, he's asking people that he trusts. But my point is I was ready, you know, yeah. follow my own process. Okay. What could go wrong? Jim could make me really explain why he needs to waste his time with this. So I better have an answer for it. <laughs> right. So, and that's what he said. He goes, look, it's great. I'm a Navy SEAL. I've got a pretty interesting background, but you know what? Throw a, throw a, throw a stone and find it and hit a Navy SEAL who's doing leadership consulting right now. It's not exactly unique. And his point was, what's separating you from all these other jackos out there doing the same thing? And I said, well, I said process. And that, everything we just went through, we, I have a very specific and detailed process that we don't deviate from. It. Mm -hmm. And that was good enough for him, right? He, you know, he, he didn't make me go through the process because he trusted that I had it. 
He right. read the book, right? He read mm -hmm. my book. So he was already knowledgeable about everything. He just needed, he needed to hear it articulate in a clear and concise manner. And, and that was it. You know, Jim, unless I missed something, that's, that's how it went. That's exactly how it went almost word for word. I, I, I did point out to him that, you know, in my impre my impression was that leadership is a very crowded field right now. You know, what is it that separates you from the rest? And this is, a, this is a very close friend of mine that I'm asking this to, but that's the relationship we have. When it's business, it's business. And it wasn't a second before he said process. Mm -hmm. And that meant a lot to me because my experience up to that point with leadership consulting was watching my wife, you know, follow the, you know, shiny object in, in the coaching world. You know, and, and that's honest. And, and, I, and I've told yeah. that to Michelle a million times. And I sat in on several of, of her interactions with, with these coaches that we were paying for for her. And that is exactly what was lacking. Mm -hmm. It was like, hi, Michelle, how are you? You know, what's your week like? What do you want to talk about? What do you want to talk about? And I said, babe, where does this begin? Where does this end? Where is the succession? Where is the, the, the blueprint? What do you take away from this? Or is this something that we're just going to pay this guy or this gal, you know, for monthly ad infinitum? And, and that seemed to be the answer. Yeah. You know, she's seen the, the drawbacks of that. You know, she's talked a bit with Errol and, and, and he's shown her some of these things. But the process that he has, the experience that he offers in comparison to some of these other folks is vastly different. Well, and, and speaks the, to me. And if I could just jump on that real quick. The, the, the other thing is what I came to realize when I said I'm, I had the process, I just wasn't implementing like we were doing, like we're doing now. And I finally came to the conclusion that what do you want to talk about? They're, they're reaching out to us for our expertise. I need to be guiding them to what we should be talking about. And that's right. really when it came clear. I'm like, I have to redo this whole thing because again, Jim, what you, Jim was very kind the way he just described what he witnessed <laughs> other folks do. And I'm not, you know, I'm, not, I'm not denigrating people do it the way they do it. But I just, I just felt like, right. What do you want to talk about was unfair. I, I I'm the expert. We're the experts. We'll tell you what we think you should right. be talking about and how it, and how it fits in. So anyway, I just wanted to make that. No, I think it's a great point, Errol. I, I, you know, because there are so many different flavors out there and look, there's an S for virtually every seat out there these days. To Jim's point, there are a shit ton of guys out there that are, you know, wearing the Navy SEAL badge of honor, which is well-deserved and offering leadership guidance and training and development. But there are a lot of different flavors. I like the fact that you picked the path that made the most sense based on how you operate, right? And, sure. and you're, able to, you're able to implement your process regardless of what the context of your engagement is to get people from where they are to where they want to be. And you start with the end in mind, which is, you know, an old Stephen okay. Covey, seven, seven Habits, Highly Effective People. Begin with the end in mind. Where do you want to go? And then you use your process to help map them a path to getting there. Is that an articulate way to put what you do? 100%. 100%. We do yeah. it. In, and again, the, 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 the process is, it, it's again, a problem-solving process. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because everything, if you think about it, everything that you do, right, you you're in a situation, there's a trigger, something triggers you, whether it's somebody you see, or it is this massive initiative, just 
slamming you in the face. That is the yep. trigger that drives an emotion. Yep. Okay. You have a set of learned behaviors that you don't even recognize that when you have an emotion, you fall back on. Okay. Then, however ill-conceived in your mind, you make some type of plan and you execute it. It's generally very, very ill-conceived, but it is in fact a plan. And then you reflect back on it in some way, shape, or form, either make an excuse for what you did, justify what you did, or in the rare circumstances of really good, talented people, you, you make positive adjustments. That, that happens with everything you're doing. And it doesn't matter how small or how big it is. What we, what we, what we say is if you're aware of each one of these things, you can start making better and more conscious decisions and you can approach everything the same methodical unemotional way. So yeah, that is the end. The end is how to solve a problem the same way every time. And then that trickles down to your organization and so on and so forth. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of meat inside of that, but that's yeah. the general concept of it. Daddy, you're muted, bud. If you're going to mo boil it down to the essence of, of how you do what you do and why you've driven such successful engagement with your clients, that's it. You can't, if you get too lost in the details early on, a lot of times you'll scare people because they don't feel as though they can actually live up to the expectation or they don't know that they have a team that's going to be able to buy in and commit to it. At the end of the day, you just got to give them a simplified version of exactly what you're doing. And then you take them on that journey, you know, through the, the 193 yeah. process. You know, well, they, have to, they have to buy in. That's the key. Correct. Right? We can have, mm -hmm. Jim and I have had a couple of people, that, as a matter of fact, the, so when Jim was going through the training, right, I, <laughs> I, I put him through the process myself, right? We went through it together and then he sat on, sat in on some calls and he sat in on a call with a, with a young lady who was more or less being forced to go through this by our company. One last chance to get better. And I even told him, I said, look, I'll, I'm going to do it. But it's not going to work. She is not coming in to this voluntarily. But let's give it a shot. Sure. And Jim, after like the first couple of calls, he he literally was like, "Is this how they all go?" What I get myself into? What I get myself into? And so she was, and I told him no. That this is an exception, so it's good to see, but. She didn't, she wasn't, she wasn't buying into anything. So she just wasn't going to get better. It's not because the process doesn't work. It's because her attitude was such that she wasn't going to give anywhere sure. to go. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the key. And one you, of the biggest. You remember her, Jim, right? Oh, clearly. Errol, <laughs> Jim, one of the biggest things for me when I went through the Leader 193 course was afterwards being able to recognize triggers, right? So what things are triggering an emotion and being able to boil down the course to just that one thing can literally change your entire life. So I, I am curious, was the behavioral behavioral guidelines or awareness, emotional intelligence, emotional awareness, always something and the mindset piece, always something you wanted to incorporate into the process? Or was it something that came to you a little bit later, the Wim Hof method as well? Because I think that that really, really also does differentiate the 193, leader 193 course. Yeah, the, the emotional part of it, and, and then I, you know, I, I do want Jim to jump in on this because he's a huge Please. proponent. Yeah. But so I don't, I, I want to be completely honest here. This process is my process that I developed, and it was a lot developed on the things I did wrong, right? It's not like, okay, when I was 17 years old, this is what I did the whole time. No. 
when I was 17 years old, I was a highly emotional young man. And, and some of the decisions I made based on those emotions really could have set me in a different path. Um, and then that, that was consistent throughout my career. So what I had to reflect back on was when did things go right and when did things go wrong? And I could very, very specifically point out when I was aware of my emotions and not letting them get away of my decision-making process, things went great. And vice versa, when I wasn't aware of my emotions and, and the actions that they intuitively drove, things went very, very bad. Whether it was just a personal relationship or it was a task I was trying to complete or somewhere in my in profession. That, that was just the consistent element of it. So it's, for me, it's the bedrock of everything. And, and I know Jim is, is big on it too. Yeah, please, Jim. Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, it was something though that when Errol started putting me through the process and that was going to be week one, and I looked at the title of week one, Emotional Awareness and Recognition, I'm like, mother of God, what is this going to, I mean, is this Oprah Winfrey? Is this Dr. Phil? <laughs> you know, and, and I'm glad, uh, you know, you I, we, we, we joke, but I'm glad that I had that initial reaction because, you know, Errol and right. I talk about this, you know, it catches some clients by surprise, particularly the men that we work with. When they see that emotional right. awareness, I got to talk about my emotions. You know, there's eye rolling. There's guys. Is there ego on flare up a little? There's, there's guys getting concerned. Then we start sharing stories with them about what we mean by this, and now you start to see recognition in their face. Like, oh, I've been there. Yeah. You know, one you might find entertaining, and and that I share occasionally is our days together on on the SWAT team. We did, we, we trained hard and there were multiple components. And one of the components of our training that we always hit on was the Bureau would call defensive tactics hand to hand, basically. And we put a lot of time into that because thank God we were always in a position where we didn't have to shoot people, but you're always putting your hands on someone at some point. Right. So this particular day we were training on how to effectively close the distance and secure a subject who wants to physically resist short of deadly force, okay? And there are multiple things that you have to do. Ron, you box, where your hands have to be, where your head has to be, lowering your level, using angles, cutting in, submitting, and bringing the person safely to no the question. ground, and various techniques we use after that. On this particular day, Errol and I were working together, and Errol was, was the bad guy, okay, who was resisting. So... I get my hands up. I'm about to start the thing. And before I even got my hands all the way up, he rocks a jab that splits my hands, hits me dead in the face, dead in the face, snaps my head back. And I'm like, I come back, get my hands up. And I'm ready now. I didn't, I I was still in the moment, which is what we talked about. Until, until I look between my guard, he smirks at me and gives me one of these. (laughs) <laughs> at that point all of the technique goes out the window i see only yep. red right and i do everything wrong 
I abandoned all of the technique, no angles, no hands, no changing of There was no clown in the chaos. Was, right. You could probably predict what happened. Yeah, yeah. Same pop, same shot in the face, same spot, boom, head goes back. But then I learned the lesson. I've got to take the emotion out of this. And it didn't happen a third time. We share stories with clients like that. They're immediate believers. You tell them how many times were you in bumper to bumper traffic after a really hard day at work. You've got about an hour, an hour and a half commute in front of you. And some thoughtless person cuts you off in traffic, almost causes an accident. Okay. I'm sorry. You said a thoughtless person? <laughs> New Jersey, that's not the word we use. Yeah. No, 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 your question. Oh, this is a professional environment. <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to maintain it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to interject for just a second because what you're yeah. talking about, like when Errol is describing the process and, and how important it is to have that clarity uh, and the emotional awareness. And I immediately think of you having that discipline. Like that is exactly the person that I know you to be because I've seen you stay structured, focused, and disciplined in almost every interaction that you and I have ever had with a couple of exceptions where I'm, I'm completely breaking things up because, you know, I have a tough time staying serious or staying, you know, that focused and disciplined a hundred percent of the time. But I thought of you immediately because that is, that is so a hallmark of your personality, but here you guys both describe Errol and you situations where you allowed your failures to drive improvement. And I think that's important. That's the thing that is really relatable for people out there. And I think that's something that separates Errol and you specifically from a lot of the other folks that are out there offering the same type of service. I appreciate you pointing that out, Sandy. But again, it's something that Errol and I talk about regularly. We, we are not the least bit embarrassed to, to share the, the truth of our backgrounds. I, I, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I think we both learned at least as much from the things we struggled with, the times we got it wrong, that caused us to go back and go, man, I could have done that a lot better if only. And then the lessons are what follows in the answers to that if only. And that's where the, this, a lot of this process has come from. And when we tell stories like that, and Errol has wanted about his halo jump that is just phenomenal. Oh, um, yes. And, and yes. really gets people. But once people understand, particularly the guys, women are often easier to work with for us in the first two weeks because it's so introspective. Yeah. They buy into this easier. We need to tell these stories to the guys so they can relate. And as Ron pointed out, get over that ego piece. And we tell them that's how we're talking about emotions. You know, we're talking about emotions the way tactical operators talk about it, athletes, titans of business, you know, other types of leaders who are able to recognize the emotion because you can't eliminate it. They manage it, catch that breath, and then act with purpose. Then yeah. you start seeing people start to go, okay, now I see where that is. Because yep. the question is always, if you follow the sequence that most people do through science, triggering event, emotions that follow, immediate action, ask yourself when you've done that, how often has that resulted in the best, your best work or the best reflection sure. of who you are or want to be? And then you start seeing people go, oh, now I get it. And then we start, that's our starting point. That's where we jump off. Such, such a great point. You know, Errol, you, you have to share that story with the audience about your halo jump, because I think it speaks volumes about the level of discipline and the level of expectation 
And then ultimately your ability as a human being to dig deep and go right back in and, and have to execute under the most difficult of circumstances, really with a, with a, a zero, you know, zero failure opportunity on your second go. So tell that story. Yeah. Well, first I want to just, you know, wrap up the, when I jab Jim in the face a couple of times. <laughs> we need closure. We need closure. Uh, yeah. yeah. A little closure on that. It's true. Uh, That's an accurate part of the story. I, I popped him twice and I started giggling at him. And I knew that would drive him nuts uh, just because I knew it would. And, and he did. The second time he came, I was like, I can't believe he's going to come walking into another one. Whack. But, <laughs> but then what happened after that, after he collected himself, did everything right. He, and he did it. He didn't do it. He did it intuitively. Like, okay, I got to calm down here and start thinking again. Right. That's the, that's nice. the beauty of the process. Right. You know, then he double legged me and, and then choked me out in about 10 seconds. So let's just. Maybe yes, it's just wrestling I, instead well, of baseball. <laughs> the muscle memory kicks in. Yeah, no. So that 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 ultimately didn't end well for me, but it, it was worth you know watching Jim get so pissed. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but the joke story. Much identified with with watching Jim get pissed. It, it's, oh yeah, it's get that vein that comes the down and with the head lights back and forth. Like he turns into skeletal, like it's, you know, his whole face gets sunken in. Anyway, <laughs> so, so the jump story, right? So when you, you know, the first jump you learn how to do in the SEAL teams is what's called the static line, right? The old World War II, you got the thing hooked up, you jump out, it pulls your chute for you. I, I never doing that. I was like, this jumping out of an airplane thing, you know, it's not really for me, but it's part of the job. So then they send you to free fall. Where you just jump out and, you know, you have to pull your own rip cord and all that stuff. And they send you through a bunch of training. You know, you get to a wind tunnel and things like that. and you, All sorts of stuff. It's not overly complicated, but it's obviously important. And, you know, I'm walking out to my first jump making jokes. And you know, I was the only SEAL. In the, there's another SEAL in the class. So, you know, people are always looking at you. <clears throat> and, you know, and I'm a, you know, I like to mess around. And I'm a pretty funny guy. So I was doing a lot of that. And... You know, just showing everybody, looking how cool I am. And I jumped out and I, I'll never forget it. I was like, holy crap. Like, there's just a wind in your face. I, I just couldn't get my bearings. And, you know, the next thing I realized is the instructor, they jump out with you, was reaching to pull my ripcord for me. And I was like, I'm not going to let that happen. So I, you know, pulled my ripcord, blew through all of my protocols, didn't just a completely unsafe jump. And, I got to the ground. I'm like, whoa, that was not what I was expecting. And the instructor came up and he just said, one more like that and you're out. So that's it. 20 minutes to your next jump, pack up, good luck. He wasn't mad. That's just what it was. One more like that, you're gone. So you got 20 minutes to figure this out. And no emotion in his voice, right? Errol just. No, no, no anger. This is just how it is. That was, that was so bad. If you do that again, you're just simply, you're in the wrong field. So I had to get honest with myself, right? I had to literally say, okay, what happened? And I had to reflect on how I was acting, what I was trying to portray, and what the reality was. The reality was I was scared shitless of jumping out of that airplane. But I didn't want to portray that, and I didn't want to admit it to myself. So what we say is, uh, that's where you're... The unacknowledged emotions is, is they sit in the unconscious mind, right? And that's, there's a lot of studies on that. I won't bore you with that. But 
Now, your emotions, they don't just call time out for you. They will be acknowledged in one way, shape, or form. And when you're not acknowledging them, there will be an action that's random. Okay? And my random action to my unacknowledged fear was inaction. And that's the point we make with these combat stories is that it's a, it's a luck of the draw. And inaction, when you're jumping out of an airplane, is not a good draw, right? Right. So, it's, so you know, that, and that's the point. And everybody gets that, right? To Jim's point, when we're talking to the guys usually, and you tell that story, like, what are you going to do? Make fun of me now because I'm talking to you about emotions. I'm talking to you about how I was jumping out yeah. of an airplane and the requirement for this. And if you don't do it, here's what could happen. So once I said, okay, I'm afraid. I just said it to myself. Sure. That clears up a whole lot of space for you now. <laughs> okay. Right. It, just, real. it clears up space. I'm afraid. And what? Well, I have options. I can quit. Well, I wasn't going to do that. Okay. It is the fear preventing me from actually doing what I'm supposed to do. No, it's not. Now that I know the effects of the fear is inaction, I can start to work my way through that. I'm jumping. Wait a second. I'm not acting. Think. Okay, it's fear. It's just fear. I, what's next? I could start thinking rationally about what I needed to do. Every jump after that was fine. I never lost the fear of jumping, and I always recognized it and then went through that process for every single jump. And some of those jumps got hairy, man. It was sure. you know, 20,000 feet at night with oxygen, you know, full combat load. It just gets, you know, it gets dicey. (laughs) (laughs) One way to put it. (laughs) And, you know, while I was afraid of it, I was, I was okay at it. Some guys still weren't getting it, man. And they were just all over the air. Anyway, (laughs) I want to stop there for one second because I think it illustrates perfectly the value of the leader one, nine, three strategy and platform. And that is, Having that process to fall back on when that fear factor sets in, as opposed to thinking about all the shit that can go wrong during that jump and all the different complications that they add to each jump for you, you go back to what do I need to do next? Okay, fear, push it aside. What do I need to do next? As opposed to, holy shit, what's going to happen if I don't? Yeah. And I think there's a fundamental, fundamental switch in your head that goes off where you say, okay, this is what I have to do next. And you follow your progression in terms of your process. Is that a fair way to put it? It's, it's exactly right. And one of the things, right, that follow on things that you have to do is you have to recognize based on that emotion, your intuitive action, what it's going to be, and whether that's a right action or a wrong action. And then you have to establish a, a new behavior for yourself. And, and that's the beauty of the process. You can do it for each incident that you go through. You can do it for your general life, right? And for me, it was... You need to calm down and think. Those are my two established behaviors for jumping out of an airplane. Recognize the emotion, calm yourself down, take a breath, and think. Well, that's it. That's where my behavior. So think about what? Think about my protocol, what I'm supposed to do. It's as simple as that. Sure. It just is. So, you know, that's the way it went. I never jumped out of an airplane again after I left the SEAL teams, and I never will. But, <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> it, unless yeah. you have to. Unless that son of a bitch is going down. And you I have guess to, if it's going down. down. I mean, I can do it. It's going. I'm <laughs> jumping, man. I'm yeah. not no doubt. thinking I'm going. Uh, let's, let's digress for a little bit. I, I want to get to both of you guys. You talk about triggers, right? And so, Jim, you and I have had coffee a number of times, especially most recently, and you shared with me some things about, you know, how you grew up in your childhood and things that were really, I think, drivers of who you've become in your life. Talk a little bit about what some of the triggers were that drove you into law enforcement and then more specifically FBI and tactical SWAT team work. What, what was it about growing up and what was it that drove that decision? I guess it's a combination of things. I, I was very fortunate that my my godfather, who was a, a very influential person in my life, thank God we, we still had him around. He was an agent going back to the early 60s and my father's best friend and, and a guy that they went to law school. So he was an, a very influential person in my life. And oh, that was always something in the background. You know, he's an FBI agent. And then as I got a little older, you'd hear that on TV and movies. And there's always that, whoa, you know, I don't mean to be the elitist in, in any way, but I always was attracted to law enforcement, you know, to guys like to, to Errol and things like that. And to me, because of my uncle and, and I had a, a tremendous agent in the town that I grew up in. Ed Peterson was just a legend in, in the Bureau who took an interest in me and mentored me along the way. So, so that had a big influence on the way that I've tried to do the same for other people. So coaching, mentorship, leadership was always a part of it and something I wanted to learn and then be able to, to, to share with other people. But based on those two guys, the, the shine on that FBI badge was to me, you know, it was blinding. That's all I wanted from the time I was a little kid. And it drove just about every personal decision, you know, that, that I made. And, and I was extremely fortunate and I'm sure their involvement had a lot to do with it, that I went high school, college, law school. I graduated law school on Saturday, Sunday, you know, I was raised in my right hand and getting sworn in in Quantico oh, and turning 25, you know, in the academy. That was a tremendous opportunity for me. I still think the government probably made a tremendous mistake because, you know, when you, when, yeah, Errol's shaking his head. When, when you say somebody is green, no one could have been any greener than me, but I basically grew up in the FBI, you know, and I learned it their way, you know, for better or worse. And I had a lot of great teachers that were agents, cops. Troopers, I've always worked on task forces, but the thing that was missing was a process, really, a, ment a strong mentorship process within the FBI. I had to find these people and learn all of these things that Errol's talking about and that are integral parts of the Leader 193 process. For me, that was years of trial and error, finding people that were not necessarily appointed to be my training agent or something like that, people who just stood out. It, it completely lacked process. And that's something that we try to really focus on because it's not just people like me who had to find their way in the F FBI. There are young people coming out of school in all kinds of businesses. Now they have this opportunity. What this would have saved me in terms of, of the first several years of my time in the Bureau, I, I, I can't even imagine. I guess things happen the way they're supposed to, and, and maybe yeah. that's why I find myself here and so attracted to what Errol's done. But 
the value is is, is tremendous. Yeah, hopefully you that's true. Yeah, hopefully that answers your question. It does. You raise a great point about even people that are getting out of school right now or anybody at any level, whether they lead a team or they're looking to be a future leader. A lot of times I feel like younger generations, especially right now, don't know how to translate their skills and the what they want in their journey and how to get to their end result in the form of where do I go? Who do I speak to? You know, what's my next step? And what you guys do in Leader 193, that process can be used for even that individual. So that's such a great point. Well, you, you're, you're right on the mark there, there, Ron, because one, some of the feedback that, and, and Errol can speak to this as well, that we get from our clients is there is a noticeable communication gap between people, say from my generation, I, you know, I'm 58, and, and those newer folks coming out of school, you know, the, there was always something between the older generation and the younger, but I think that gap has spread even wider now because things have changed so drastically, so quickly, you know, I mean, there's a, a vast difference between my oldest daughter, you know, and, and her experiences as a 29 year old versus my 19 year old when, when my older one was in college, you know, things have sped along so fast, even 10 years is a big gap and how different things are in their experiences. And, and I think because the leader 193 principles are so universally, universally applicable, everybody could appreciate it. And it's a good meeting point between those brand new people and those experienced folks. We, we work with a terrific client. I don't know, Errol, if you, if you feel comfortable in, in, in sharing the name, but it's yeah, an engineering yeah. firm. Yeah, use engineering. And, Use Engineering, Rob Hughes, bought into this, and to his credit, he put himself through this, not once, twice, and follow-on with Errol, and then he provides this opportunity, full coaching, to every single new employee. Brilliant. That's and I mean, they are all speaking the same language. Their behavioral guidelines are, are cradle to grave, the way I tell them. It's the way they hire, the way they promote the way they reward, and the way they establish and maintain credit accountability. It's absolutely tremendous. You know, Jimmy, you speak to a big challenge in, in corporate America right now, and there is a, a fundamental disconnect in terms of philosophy and in terms of communication skills. And it has been accelerated over the last 10 to 15 years or so. I, I would venture to say this probably has something to do with it, right? Mm -hmm. you know, because it's become a different way to communicate. And so there's a learning curve on both sides of that equation. Um, Harold, do you see the same thing that Jim's talking about as well? It, it's, I'm really glad we're talking about this because I, you know, I write, I write a million blogs and I wrote one on millennials. And my point was, look, every we need to stop labeling millennials, generation X, whatever it is. It's between the ages of 20 and 30, you know, you're a half wit. Between 30, you know, that's what we should be labeling them, right? And then between 30 and 40, you start to get your bearings a little bit. And then between 40 and 50, you're, you know. So this whole thing around millennials and whatever the next one behind them and them being lazy and them being this and that. My the celestials. Was, whatever they are. I don't even know. I can't even keep up. <laughs> yeah, you know, some of the, a lot has changed. 
but what I've found, and I know what Jim has found, because when we get a lot of these young people through, I, I, I give them to Jim, but I've done it myself, is they want what everybody else wants. They want to be led. They yes. want to understand. They want clear expectation. Okay, that's what they want. They want things to be consistent. They want things to be predictable. Okay, and when those things are in place, they will either respond or say, this isn't for me. And what we tell the, the, corp the companies that we work for, that's a good thing. So now you can say, you know what? You're really not a cultural fit here because our culture is this. No hard feelings. You don't like to plan before you act. You don't like to whatever. That's cool. But that's just not how we do it. So, hey, good luck. And everybody can shake hands and move on. The kids want that, okay? Mm -hmm. it's, it just simply has nothing to do with being politically correct or, or whatever the differences that are there now. They, they're generational differences. It's going to keep happening. But I can, I can promise you, these young kids want leadership. And we're so afraid. I'm not afraid. Jim's not afraid. And it seems like, okay. Well, Errol, you're speaking about society at large is afraid for these kids to go through the shit that they need to go through to experience these the things, right? Then because and we're to so create afraid. clarity. Yeah, to challenge them because we're so afraid we're going to hurt their feelings. Absolutely. And, and, and we're not going to hurt their feelings. Yes, it, it, what, it, what it delivers is the exact opposite result of what they're looking for. They want to get better. They want to be able to handle tough situations. If we continually protect people from tough situations, they never develop, as Ron says, the, the muscle memory and the mental toughness and the emotional awareness to get through that stuff. That's exactly what you're talking about. And it's so on the mark, man. Well, and it's, it's, it's really played out. And it's, it's kind of hard for me to bang on you know, Facebook and, and Netflix because they're multi-billion dollar corporations. They built these things. Doesn't make them right. It, well, you know, but what they've recently done, and I found it really funny with Facebook doing it, but they created a culture. And their sure. culture was do what you want, say what you want. If somebody offends you, you know, blast them on social media and cancel them. That, that was the culture they built. That's what they did. And now, you know, I thought it was hysterical. Netflix, like, well, we're just not going to work on things and we don't think we represent our values. And they finally had to say that maybe this place isn't for you because you work on things. Yep. So they got, they got back to the basics of here's how we do business. And if you don't like it, that's okay, but you'll have to leave. Yeah. And for Facebook and Zuckerberg to do the same thing, man, I was, I fell over laughing because yeah. again, th those principles never go away. Now, I don't know why they, I know why Netflix decided to do it. That was clear. Right. Facebook is still, you know, what, what are they? A hundred billion dollar organization. <laughs> Not like all of a sudden they weren't making money. But I, I can only imagine what was happening. It was so bad that a guy like Mark Zuckerberg had to start laying the law down on some very specific behavioral guidelines. And here's how the culture is going to work now. I would love to know what was happening, what that financial outlook was for them to go, we, we've got to change this. And my point is the, the millennials, the youngsters, they respond to that, sure. right, to that clarity. Especially when they feel that they had a voice arrow. 
because I feel like a lot of times too, right? Like you, you talk about accountability and, and the, the team meetings that a leader can have, giving everybody that space to speak on the mission, understanding yeah. their part and their role. A lot of them don't feel like they have that voice or their role isn't being, you know, yeah. so that's totally a great point. Yeah. Well, I think Errol speaks to another aspect of it, which is it's got to be in, in alignment with the organizational values and the culture. And so I think what we see is a lot of times some of these young folks coming in, they want to be heard, but they don't want to earn the right to influence the direction Correct. of the company or understand that there has to be some level of assimilation into the, the culture of the organization in order for you to advance your message, right? And it's not going to get a chance to hijack it. It's you have to add value to the mission and purpose of our organization if you want to stick around. If not, it was nice knowing you, but we're moving on. And there's yeah, not enough companies out there with the guts to do that because they have the, the politically correct <laughs> virus and, and don't want to say something that's going to upset someone. And Sandy, we talk about it all the time. If it doesn't lift your culture up, it's not a good fit, right? So, amen. But it's still, it's still a leadership issue. I don't blame the kids. Okay. Uh, because no they, doubt. They, 100%. They, yeah. They, you know, they, and that's what we talked, you know, again, this, this company, Hughes Engineering, which has been a longstanding client of ours, they, you know, they, all the things that Jim said they do, they also fire based on this. You know, like you are no longer a part of this culture. We've made it clear. And, and so now, it begs the question, well, you're not going to tell me how to act. Well, let's break that down a little bit because in a way I am. You know, I'm going to say we need to be, we need to prioritize the things we do with this company. Yes. We prioritize. We plan thoroughly. We're consistent in our effort. Yes. So I will tell you, you have to act in those ways. I'm not telling you you can't be funny. I'm not telling you you can't be an introvert. I'm not telling you you can't be whoever you are as a human being, I'm telling you, those are three behaviors that we require. Yeah. And so now it's, and it's not, it's not, I'm not letting you be you. No, you, you just have to prioritize your work. You just have to plan before you start executing. You, and and the consistent thing is big in the sales, right? You know, I had a huge first quarter. I'm going to disappear for Q2 and then Q3, you know, and you know these these sales leaders will ask, "How do I, I? I don't know what to do." I said, "Well, what's the behavior you need from them?" Well, they need to be consistent. I go, "There it is. You just identified a required behavior for your salespeople that you can hold them accountable to. That's it. And you have to tell them, and you have to hold hold them to." Them. Anyway, I'm digressing now, but no, no, no. You're you're on, Errol. To be honest with you, Ron and I discuss this all the time with clients. Reciprocal <laughs> accountability. I've actually identified in my mind what I mean is. Reciprocal accountability means that the person that's in, in a leadership capacity is accountable for holding the people on their team accountable. And if you're not doing that, then you're not holding yourself accountable. There's a reciprocal nature to accountability. It's got to be on both sides. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It's lopsided and ends up falling apart. I know me and Jim, and Jim, I want to, you know, because we talk all the time about it. at the end of the day, when we're coaching leaders and something goes wrong on our team. We go, yeah, well, that's still your fault, right? <laughs> so Jim was getting just weigh in because you were about to weigh in on something there. Yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're talking around of, about these behavioral guidelines. And, you know, the, the process Arrow built, it, it really focuses on five essential elements. 
they're all equal, but in my view, behavioral guidelines is first among equals. It, it comes in in week three for us because of the way things sequentially build one on top of the other. But I think that's where we're bringing measurable value to the client is almost immediately. Mm-hmm. But it's not an easy thing. It's not just off the top of your head coming up with a few, five, 10, 15 behaviors. And that's where people go wrong. It's a, pro- it's a process within a process where leaders have to first identify what are we missing? Where are the gaps? What do we do wrong? What are the behaviors that we have to do to make us better? And if we're doing everything right, what are the behaviors that are going to get us to the next level? Mm-hmm. Once they've identified those, it hasn't ended. They have to put that into words. They have to explain it to their folks. They have to ensure that their folks understand what the expectations are based on those behaviors. And then it's it's like on the shampoo bottle, rinse and repeat. Washroom. If you it, it, yeah, if you lack the consistency, you might as well not even go down the road. Yep. Right. Because then it becomes that axiom, you get the behavior you're willing to tolerate. If you're too lazy to follow up as a leader, to hold people accountable, to sometimes have those uncomfortable conversations and bring people back into the fold, well, then, like Errol said, it's your fault. Yeah. Ron it's unfortunate, but it's true. Ron and I have been through that, where you know we've been brought in, referred into a, a prospective client. And very recently, Ron knows this, we last. <laughs> 12 calendar months, I won't say going back and forth, but on multiple different occasions being brought in multiple times and, and uh, the, the folks in charge of the company wanting us to basically adulterate the process that we have for training on business development, which is a sales and sure. platform that we call the seven pillars of killer business development. And we were asked on three separate occasions to violate our our compass in terms of how we go about installing our, our process and our development program for business development. And we said, no. And I, I remember saying to Ron about six months ago, we will end up doing business, but we're going to have to do it the way that we know is going to serve our client best, even though they think they want something different. Yeah. You know, so and yeah. it's not even just saying because of Sandy, of us wanting to do it our way. It's just about the fact that if you're bringing us into the organization and we're telling you a proven tried and true process, just like leader one, nine, three, right? Like, and then you're telling us, well, I want to do it my way as the CEO. Well, then why bring us in at all? You right. know, it's just, you know, you're, you're almost not looking within yourself to say, what do I as the leader need to work on in order to bring these guys into my organization and, uh, and, and knowing that that's true first. Yeah. And to Errol's point, you know, staying true north on what you know is going to be the right way to go about things and what's best for the client. Ultimately, that's got to be the, the principle for you is what's going to deliver the result that the client is looking for. The well, we, the, the other thing, and we, Jim and I get that, not a lot, but we, we get it, right? We get real experienced people who want to, not attack, yeah, but who want to, who want to ping the process in different ways. Well, yeah, but, and, you know, so how do we deal with that? And what we say is, hold on, we're not here to defend our process, okay? Because it's already been defended and it's already been proven. Now, that said, your job during these eight weeks is to take it in and give it a test drive. That's all your job is to do with an open mind and an open heart. It's not for you to poke holes in it. Okay. It's for you to try. So that's how we kind of handle that whole thing. Yeah. Come on in leader one, nine, three, but do it this way and that way. Well, no, 
that's not a process. <laughs> right. Why don't you just why don't you just give this a go and see how it can complement what you want to do? And that's the, also the beauty of what we've got. Because if you've got something in place that you love, the leader one nine three way is not going to replace it, but I promise you it will complement it. And so you'll end up taking oh, whatever yeah. portions and are filling your gaps. So that's how we handle that very dicey spot about people going, no, 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 that's not going to work. That's not your job right now. Your job is to try this and mm. see how it works for you. And if you don't like it at the end of the eight weeks, throw it out. Right. But if you're coming in with that preconceived notion, we've got to reset. And, and Jim, right, we just had that yeah. conversation the other day. And it, it, it always works. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, and particularly when people finally see that we're not trying to change everything you do. Because oftentimes people say, oh, I do that instinctively. That's, that's phenomenal. If, if you do this instinctively, that's great. But how consistent is instinct? I, I, I've been coaching a lot of different things for a good part of my life. I've never found a way to coach in, you know, how do you teach that and pass that on? Because that, that's part of what we're doing too. You know, you got to anticipate as a leader that you're getting the next generation ready to take your job as you move up, hopefully, within an organization. You know, so mentorship is a big part of that. Once they realize that we're, we're offering you extra skills to put in your backpack, if, if you're a successful leader already, well, have a look at what we bring to the table. We're pretty confident that we could help you get even better than you already are. But as General says it, and people take this pretty well, take it for a test drive. And, you know, that usually is enough for people to go, okay, these guys are not shoving something down my throat. They're confident in what they're doing. But, you know, ultimately the decision is going to be up to me at the end of eight weeks. Where does this land? Jim, I think you make two great points. First is that, you know, instinct and intuition are not duplicatable. And so it's not scalable in an organization, right? You may have some folks that are just gifted instinctively and, and in terms of intuition and their ability to, to execute because of that, but that's not duplicatable. And that's not something you can carry forth in order to scale leadership in an organization, right? Which is critical. If you're not scaling the leadership, you're not going to scale the organization, right? So you have that, that process that you can build leaders underneath each layer of leadership, if you will, so you can prepare the next generation of leaders coming in. And then the other piece we talk about in terms of, of the commitment or the buy-in and, you know, Errol said, we asked them to give it a try. You know, it's the old fundamental that they've got to give their 100% of their 50%. The only way that any of this ever works is if we've got each side giving 100% of their 50% in order to deliver the result that the client is looking for it and, and making sure they understand that early on, I'm sure is part of your onboarding process as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Just a, yeah. a clarity on the expectation. Yeah. Right. If you had to break it down into that simplified statement, that's it. And, and Bingo. I, it, nobody's coming into the leader 193 way, you know, program and it's not clear exactly what's going to happen. Right. They're right. just not, you know, so, but, but that makes everything easier, right? It All does. It's easier 100%. because now there, you know what's expected. You know what you have to do. Now it's just a matter of execution, right? Commitment and execution and, and putting forth the effort. Hey, let's digress for a second, Harold, because I want to go back to the question I asked Jim before and, and ask it of you. What was the trigger for you? I know in both the FBI and also in the SEAL world, there are 
real informal and formal communities or mentoring communities, if you will. I think about Marcus Luttrell, one of the books I enjoyed a lot, Lone Survivor, learned a lot about the SEAL community and the SEAL culture in that book. And, and he had some informal influences on him. I think, are they East Texas? Is that where most of those guys come out of the Luttrell crew? I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that. I don't know them, but I think they're Texas. Yes. And, and what I identified in that book was that there was this informal mentorship prior to even getting into the SEALs that led them on that path. What was it for you? What triggered you to go that route in your life? Yeah, it's, it, it's not as clear cut as Jim's story about the FBI. And Jim has always, that's, that's always been his thing, right? Growing up, Dude's this a unique animal. Errol. This is what I was going to do. I, I got a, when I was, I don't know, like 12 or something like that, my next door neighbors went to the Naval Academy. And they had a Naval Academy family and they just dropped off. We looked close to them and they dropped off a, a Naval Academy pamphlet. You know, I'm looking through it and it's, you know, super cool with the people in the uniforms and stuff. But there was this one section and it said about Navy SEALs. And the article was about, it was less, it was a paragraph, a short paragraph. Because back then, it's not like it is now. Anybody, you know, there's people out there who know twice as much about the SEALs who aren't SEALs than I do. But it just, it was very quiet. And the picture wasn't a cool picture. It was like five guys sitting around in those silly short shorts, you know, but there was just something about the explanation, which you couldn't quite figure out. And just the demeanor of these guys, I was like, who are these guys? Right now, fast forward, I forgot about it. And it came time for me in high school to go to college. And, you know, my primary sport in high school was lacrosse. So I was going to play college lacrosse. And I talked to my Arrow, Real quick, where did you grow up? Long Island, okay. Bay Shore, yeah, South Shore, and uh, big time, there. big time lacrosse out there, buddy. Well, yeah, it, you know, it, it's it's pretty, it's getting, it's spreading out. But your best players are still coming from Long Island, upstate New York, and Maryland. That's those are the those are the hubs. So anyway, he said, "Well, where do you want to go?" And you know, again, I didn't say Hopkins or Syracuse or Maryland. Just in my head popped the Naval Academy. I had not, I had no dreams. I had no aspirations. It was that quick. I contend that that, that charge I got from looking at that book was always there. So he was like, okay, called the coach that came and scouted me. That is the only school I talked to. And if I didn't get into the Naval Academy, I don't know what I was going to do because I, I hadn't talked to anybody else. That's, that's nuts. And that's so nuts. Now, now when I got to the Naval Academy, then it, then I was like, oh, right, the SEALs thing. And then from there, then I did have the, I, I will be a SEAL. And I had to go a very circuitous route. But that, that's my journey. You know, once I, once I got into the Naval Academy and I was reminded of, oh, yeah, then I was, there was nothing that was going to stop me from being a Navy SEAL. I had to go to the circus fleet first, spent two years. That turned out to be a great experience. But you're a 23, 24-year-old kid who wants to go eat snakes for a living and I'm on a boat, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was tough. How do you prefer man. them, Errol? You prefer them grilled? Do you boil them? What do you, how do you eat them? Raw the snakes? Just raw, man. Raw and bad. <laughs> raw and alive. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's my route. I, I, it's, you know, I don't, it's not good or bad. It's just what it was. And it, it was very different. But as far as Jim and I were similar, once I got to the Naval Academy, 
that one track mind to what I wanted was very similar to him. You were there. You were there for a purpose. Yeah. Sure. Let me ask you, what was it like showing up there day one, week one, you know, going through buds? Like what, what was going through your mind and what lessons do you now carry forward into Leader 193 that you learned during that first week, that first month, your initial, you know, exposure to the SEALs training? At, at the time of my life, I was never so happy. I will never forget showing up there and just being like, I, I, not, I can't believe I can be this happy. Right. That was the first thing. And that was a really raw and pure emotion. You know, the only thing I can compare it to, and I don't say this as a, you know, because my wife might be watching, was getting married to my wife yeah. and my three kids being born. Yeah. You know, joining the FBI is, is like a distant, not a distant, but that was in there too. I was pretty happy when I got there. But my point is what I, the big thing I take away, and I, I get asked this question a lot, was when we talk about you're blessed and you're really fortunate for something to happen, I was fortunate to be a part of something that I wanted so badly. Not everybody can get that. So for me, Bud's was not hard in the sense of, I don't know if I can do this, right? It was hard right. because I wanted it so bad, because there was nothing that was going to derail me. Quitting truly was never an option. Mm -hmm. So all of those hard things that happened, I had plenty of space to figure out how to get through them because one of them wasn't, and I could quit. Right. And I think, and I think that every seal that was their mentality. Did you ever think about quitting? I, I think if they say that, yeah, they're lying because everybody who considered quitting quit. Every guy who said. Man, I don't know about this. You just started to not even try to talk them out of it anymore because you're like, ah, oh, it's now he's on the clock. And, and it was, it was clockwork. The second somebody said, I don't know if this is for me, but I, I'm going to try to suck it up. You know, the first guy who quits, everybody was like, no, don't do it, man. Don't do it. Right. You know, by week three, somebody quits. You're like, yeah, good luck. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I can't get all better off not here. Yeah, yeah you know, just do it. Can I tell a quick story about that? Of course. Okay. So there was, so I went through, of course, the hardest Buds training class in the history of Buds, right? Everybody does. But we did, it was a winter class and we did start with about 200 and at the end of Hell Week, we ended with about 10. Hell Week, it's a six month program and Hell Week's at the end of like week four or five. So it was one of those. And so, and the waves, it's right on Coronado, right? So we're right on the Pacific. I know that and, spot. Oh, yeah. And so we were going to go out for an ocean swim. And the waves were so big, the instructor said, we're cutting that. Everybody go get your boats. And those little boats you see, the, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the, the, you know, the, the river boats. Yeah. Go get your boats. So you had about 30 seconds to go get your boats. And they knew it was so big that the drill was get out past the surf zone and come back in. You do that, your day's over. And they knew that would take hours. And so we're scrambling, you know, scrambling to get stuff done. I was an officer. So I'm, you know, hey, go, right. do this, do that. And one of the guys I really counted on, his name was Pat. I don't remember his last name, but I'll never forget. And he was, he was the man. Like this guy, he was just awesome. And he comes running up to me. He's like, sir, I need to talk to you for a second. I go, Pat, do you see what's going on here? Can this wait? <laughs> he goes, yeah, yeah, I can wait. So we're, so we're doing this thing, right? 
And and I would only say that to him because I knew him so well. And he, I, you know, he was just a stud. Next thing I hear is bang, bang, bang. And I go, everybody stop. Where's Pat? No way. And they go, that was it. Holy shit. Are you kidding me? So we go do the thing. And I was like, you know, you know, this is the podcast. So I'm, I was like, we're fucking getting out past that surf zone. We're getting back in and we're doing it in 10 minutes because I got to go find Pat. And everybody's like, yeah. yeah. And we, those other groups are out there for three hours. We got it done like the first time. I go to Pat's room. I go, Pat, you could have told me what was on your mind when you said that you wanted to talk to me. And I was, I was broken up, right? Because yeah. I'm like, I just dismissed this guy who was looking for some guidance. And he goes, oh, no, no, sir. He goes, I was just going to tell you that that's what I was going to do. He goes, I was never going to get in that water. <laughs> he goes, I just will not get hit. So he goes, I was just giving you a courtesy. Don't, don't worry about it. There, I, there was nothing you were going to say to talk me out of it. He goes, the weight of the world is off my shoulders. I, I don't know what my point is. I'm telling a, a good one story about Bud that people love it, but you just never knew. Okay. This guy, Pat, was a great leader. He was a complete stud. Everybody loved him. He just didn't want it as bad as he needed to want it. And that was sure. it. Errol, let me ask you a question. As you look back retrospectively, Jim, I know you've got an 11 o'clock, so if you need to dump off, we totally get it. It's okay. Okay. And, and before you do, I want to thank you, bro. You, you're the <laughs> connection you. here. Don't lost, man. From this, this, this relationship here, and I thank you for it. I thank you for your service. I thank you for your friendship. I thank you for your fellowship. But, you know, if you have to drop off, you drop off, and we'll connect, you know, offline. But everybody that's watching this owes you, and I know you're going to feel funny about this, a debt of gratitude for what you've done in service to this country. I know Amen to that. But it's the truth. I break your balls often enough. I'm going to tell you, it really is. I thank God that there are people like you on the other side of the equation. You know well, what I mean? Hey, thanks, Sandy. Appreciate the kind words. But let's get back, Daryl, and some of those cool stories oh, while we well, got a few minutes. But I, I will say this. Ask Errol this question. Do, Errol, hold, hold on, Sandy. Before it go goes, we do have to do this again because, again, the shortstop exploits, you know, Catholic high school. Oh, we, 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 need to, we need to really think of those. Yeah, yeah, this I is have, fun, right? the connections on the Bergen Catholic side that will. Yeah, okay, we 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 did highlight the fact that I admitted to pulling you know wooden splinters out of my ass and sitting on the bench, and he's like, "Yeah, I was a pretty tremendous lacrosse player." Yeah, so, right? But I made sure he made sure he worked at it. Of well, course, you know, I don't know what to say. But I will say, sadly, to your final point before Jim and Jim's getting off because he's got he's got a call. Yeah, um, with the but uh, pe people have no idea the debt of gratitude they owe, owe Jim. I, yeah. I, I happen to have a, a little bit of insight into the work that he did. And, you know, Jim, Jim's good at calling people who did great work. They're legendary. I can promise you. Jim DiStefano is a legend in the FBI and certainly Fact. within the SWAT community. And within the organized crime, Italian organized crime community. So that, that is that is a fact. So, but also a shortstop. Yeah. <laughs> no question. Not you know, I deserve every accolade, buddy. And by the way, he also married so far over his head. Over his head is not even funny. Yeah. Okay. So. okay. All right. You know, I, I didn't want this with some appropriate sign language, but I'm going to try to keep him professional. See you like guys. This? Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, a few yeah, last fingers. So yes. A few yeah. last fingers. All right, guys. Thank Everybody you very much. You. Thank you. Thank right, you. So, Errol, Bye-bye. the question I was going to ask you is, and, and it reminded me of a story about Socrates. I'll get to that in a second. But, you know, if you had known that that was going to be what he was going to say to you, what would your response or reaction have been at that point in time? Would you have looked to talk him into it? Or would you have said, like, the mission at hand is we've got to get out and in and and I don't have time to talk through, you know, your lack of, of commitment or confidence. What what would your response have been, do you think, Reggie? Yeah, if it was somebody lesser than him, that would have been my response. Hey, do what you got to do. We, we got something to do here. Yep. The fact that he was such a phenomenal human being, I, what I would have said to him was, get in my boat, stay with me. Just trust me. Oh, okay? wow. Get, you know, I, 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 that's what I would have said. Just let me help you get through this one. Okay. If you want to quit after that, go ahead. Right. That's what I would have said. I, you know, who knows? If Bro, I'm, I'm choked it. up right now hearing that come out of your mouth because that speaks to just a real personal connection and, and fundamental respect for another human being. And it breaks my heart to know that, that, you know, the outcome was that he ended up ultimately, you know, ringing the bell. Uh, there was a couple of guys like that. And they, they, you know, so when I, I'm not kidding. I'm not joking when, especially during Hell Week, our Hell Week, it was so, it rained the whole time. It was in January. It was so cold. And, you know, by day two, guys quitting. They're just like, just go, just go. I, right. I don't have time. I remember one time we were, they, yeah, we were just in our shorts and it was at night and they're hosing us down. And they said, all right, get warm. And all that meant is everybody jump on top of each other. Right. And, and, you know. And so I was, you know, I, I felt like as a leader, I wasn't going to be in the middle of that pack. I was going to be on the outside trying to keep other people warm, you know, sucking up a little bit. And this one guy goes, he goes, sorry, I'm so cold. I, I think, I just don't know if I can do this anymore. I'm like, then man, go ring the bell because I've got bigger problems right now. <laughs> I can't, I can't get you through this. I'm trying to survive. But well, there the are numbers co- are incredible to me. You know, you start with 200 and it whittles down to 10. Yeah, the, the the ten is accurate. The two hundred, you know, give or take. Probably, right? There might yeah. be somebody. There Never. might be somebody listening. No, no, no. You know, it was right around there, and, and it it was even before. Anyway, that's about the number. But so, but there was a couple of guys like this guy Pat, who did quit during Hell Week, and and they they you know I just I couldn't get to them. I don't think I would have changed their mind. Once you once you're there, yeah, you're. But they were just such great human beings i would have if i could could have caught them i would said just stay with me to the next meal yep. just get to the next meal and if you want to quit then quit then but just not now so Love that approach errol and and there's something to what you're saying the fact that you just want to get them to that next that next destination you want to be the bridge between where they are and just that next destination so you can kind of talk to them when the emotion isn't quite as high That's and right. the doubt isn't ringing in their ears you know, and I got that from my dad, you know, and look, a lot of people do that, but that's, that's how that particular lesson was, was passed down to me. He would, you know, I, you do a lot of things as a young man and, and you, know, sure. you know, there's a lot of times I just said, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And he said, well, you are. I, I remember I played hockey growing up and I started when I was four and I ended up stopping when I was 14 and, and I ended up stopping because, you know, at that time. If you really want, if you were an American hockey player, oh, yeah. you want, you, you had to go either to Europe or Canada to see if you were going to make do it. it. And, Correct. And my dad had that conversation with me and 
my, my last year playing hockey, he said, look, I'm not trying to get you out of a house, but if this is where you're going, this is, this is, this is the conversation we need to have. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, pop, I said, I, I said, I think I'm done. I, I'm good. He goes, okay. And I go, so let's, I'm going to, I'm going to quit now. And he goes, well, no, no, you're not. He goes, it's like, you know, you're a quarter of the way through the season. Right. He goes, you'll, you'll finish because that's what we do. We don't quit in the middle of something. And after the season's over, we'll go ahead and, and revisit this. Um, and then you can make your decision. And, and he had done that to me on several things that I was doing, mm-hmm. and, you know, growing up. And I think that's just the philosophy, right? You quit. There's nothing wrong with quitting or stopping doing something. It's when people do it. And for the reasons, and again, it goes back to our original conversations, usually an emotionally charged decision. And if you can get people sure. past that initial emotion and say, you, you have to get through this. And then on the other side, make a more rational calm decision. That, you know, my dad was real good about that with me. And, you know, that's just something. So, yeah, that's where I came. I, I think it's really wise. And, and uh, is your dad still with us? No, unfortunately, he passed eight okay. years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, man, that's, a, that's a dude I'd like to meet and shake his hand. Oh, he, he was the best. That's for sure. Right? He was the best. Reminds me of my father. Yeah, well, Ron, Ron. As I, told, as I told you before, Errol, my dad was 82nd Airborne, taught mm-hmm. jump school at Bragg, and everything growing up was, it's non-negotiable. If you start something, you you're going to see it through, yeah. and that's it. You know, and he wanted me to try so many different things because he didn't get the opportunity to do them as a young man. So he was like, how do you know you don't like it if you don't try it? How do you know? You got to go do it. And I had to yeah. go do it, and if I didn't like it, either. So you his, dad, his dad's a real deal, Errol. No, I, I, I know. It sounds like it. It sounds like it, but you know, hey, look, that's a whole nother conversation, right? The power and the importance of fatherhood, or, you know, for those lessons, you know, where's the biggest mission of the four hours on that? Yeah, we could spend all day on it, but the statistics speak for themselves, right? The troubled youths are the ones without a father figure. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so funny because what you said about your dad having you finish what you started brought me back to a, an experience I had with my son playing baseball. He was playing on a club team and, and it was summertime. We were down at the beach and I was driving him an hour and a half up to Staten Island for four straight days for this tournament, Thursday through Sunday. And, and he was disappointed in the team simply because there was a lot of kids that weren't as focused on, you know, on winning and doing the very best they possibly could as he was. And he'd become disillusioned. So we hit Saturday. And we go in and uh, his team gets wiped off the field by a, another team from Texas sponsored by Muscle Milk. And our kids are out there like the Bad News Bears. We get mercied, I think, 14 to nothing. Ooh. And my son was just completely demoralized. We're on the way back to the, to the beach because we're going back and forth every day. And he says, Dad, I'm done. He says, I just, I can't do this anymore. He says, I, I feel like I'm wasting my time. And these guys don't care. They were laughing on the bench. It made me so angry. He's like, I don't even want to see these guys. He says, I'm done. I don't want to come back tomorrow. I said, bro, it's not how we roll. You made the commitment to be a part of this team. You're going to play out the tournament. You're going to play out the rest of the season. And when you're done, you're going to hand your uniform to the coach and you're going to tell him that you appreciated the opportunity and this is why you were disappointed in the results, but you're not going to play the second season you know, in the summertime. And that's what he did. We made him finish what he started. And he has always come back to me and said, Dad, I, I'm so glad that you made me do that because if I had quit on on the team, it would have been no different than quitting on myself at that point. Well, well, and then it also would have been kind of, we talk about 
what's the culture, you know, quitting becomes very easy to become good at. 100%. Uh, and, and all the excuses you make for yourself. And, and I just think that that is an invaluable lesson. You know, I've got three young kids. I got started late to so my, my oldest is nine. It's my okay. son, and he's very much like me. And, you know, sometimes I feel like all I do is correct the kid. You know, like I can give him a break for God's sakes, but. Ron's laughing right now. We've talked about this so much. But then I. I oh, God. You, this is my job. This is, this is my job for better or for worse. And, and I don't, I, I would love to let the kid do anything he wanted. Sure. Cause that's how, you know, that's how much you love your kid. And every now and then I'm like, you're not doing your job if you let him get away with this. And I know you just blasted him an hour before for something else, <laughs> you know, and it, it, it's hard, but that's leadership. Leadership is hard. Yep. Leadership. You know, when you say, you know, can't be friends with people if you're a leader there there's a lot to that you can mm -hmm. be friendly okay but you know sure my my son he considers me his best friend and i appreciate that because he's nine and that's the way it should be but i'm not his friend i'm his father absolutely right? and and there's a difference so i you know again do we digress on this but it's still a leadership no, I think conversation it's, it's relevant it is relevant yeah. it's, it's so relevant because you know First of all, it's the most important job we get is parenting, right? I mean, more important than anything else that we do. And it's our responsibility to raise kids that we want to hang around with later on in life. That's right. I sure. mean, that's kind of the goal is to raise kids that you're going to have respect for and that will have respect for you ultimately. But, you know, you, your ability to separate fatherhood from friendship is is essential in order to raise, you know, kids that get it and that understand. And I'm curious, how how different is your perspective on life now as a parent as to prior not being a parent <laughs> yeah well, it, it's, it's an impossible question to answer because it's just it, it the answer is 180 you yeah. know and you don't know it until you have the kids and you don't even really realize it until you stop and sit and reflect you know that you know when i, I would hear friends talk about their kids when i wasn't even married yet and i i appreciated what they were saying but I didn't get it. You know, the whole idea that I would, without blinking, step in front of a bus for one of my kids, that, that is an absolute fact, right? And it really, if I stepped in front of that bus, their fever would go away, okay, <laughs> because I can't, I can't handle dumb. watching them suffer. Absolutely, so, darn it. So the perspective is, is huge. I try to use my own process for the kids. I we try to teach them this. Yeah, that emotional stuff. My son is exactly like me for better or for worse. So we'll have, and, and this is where my wife checks me, you know, she, you know, she's like, well, why were you so hard on them for that thing? And I was like, well, cause that's what I used to do. And I never got checked on it. And it turned into something that I had to really turn around later in life. And it was too much of a challenge. And she's like, okay, I get it. But he's also not you. Okay. He's, he's a lot like you. Don't bring your baggage to him. Okay. And, and, you know, again, you have to listen to that. Like, wow, am I just bringing my baggage to my kid? Because, you know, it's all comes from a good place. I don't want him to do the things I did just because he did this thing that's similar. He, he's nine for God's sake. He's going to do some silly things. Anyway, it's the perspective is it's all I think about. Every time the kids are in the room, I think about how, 
what energy am I bringing? Or am I bringing my best self to them? Am I being selfish because I had a bad day? And what they really need is to talk to me just because they love their dad still. Because those days are going to end. I know that, right? (laughs) You know, and we're probably only a few years away. And it's quick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but Errol, I give give you, just from this quick conversation about it, Sandy, from the time that I've known him, so much credit because the ability to even recognize that, right? Like, and I'm not, and... I thank God for the way my dad brought me up because yes, it was hard. Yes, it was difficult. And yes, there were times where I was just like, ah, you know, as a kid, right? But I, I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for him in terms of the respect level I have for Absolutely. people and the work ethic that I have. But there were, he was so bogged down with making a living for my, me, my sister, my mm-hmm. mom, and just being able to pay the bills that it didn't, those conversations didn't really, I think, happen in his mind as much. They definitely happen, but the ability for you guys, both of you to recognize that in the moment is, is truly special. So don't ever take that for granted. And I appreciate that about both of you. I just no, but th- you know, th- listen, we can put a fine point on it and Errol, you'll totally, I think, get where I'm coming from here. There's a direct correlation to parenthood and leadership, right? There's a, a you know, a element of sacrifice. There's the essential element of relevant experience. When you referenced before that, you know, when you were hardest on your son was when you saw him repeating some of the things or mistakes that you had made, you know, our, our instincts as parents and our instinct as leaders is to help them avoid those mistakes. And sometimes the very best thing is to allow them to go through some of those experiences in order to come out the other side, knowing what the hell it is you wanted to tell them in the first place. It's like you referenced your friends and seeing how they were with kids and, and getting it, but not really getting it. It's like, if I said to you, this is what a hangover is going to feel like, and you've never drank a- alcohol before until you drink that, you know, Hello. Uh, you know, peel a, a bottle of Boone's form and wake up the next day with that blasting headache and the, the tongue that you could shave didn't really understand what we're talking about. And sometimes the experience is invaluable and we have to be cognizant of not cheating our people or our kids from having some of those experiences. Now the really, you know, the, the dangerous stuff and the stuff that can be, you know, so detrimental in an organization or from a leadership perspective, you've got to forewarn. But I think sometimes I, I like to see folks go through something so you can have a better, more educated conversation or discussion around that, the topic of the challenge. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. And knowing they're going to walk into the, you know, the lion's den and let them go. Boy, that's that's a tough well, one, but it is necessary. One of the things that I will say around the, the challenge of leadership at home, you know, right? For all of our, not for all of our clients, for most of our clients, we end up talking about personal stuff because I, I at some point in the program, I make a point to say, well, are you doing this at home? Right. Well, what do you mean? It, it might be different things you need to do, but it's all still in the process. And they're like, oh boy, that, so they'll try it. And they're like, why is it so much harder at home? And I, the answer is simple because you have so much emotional skin being at home. Yeah. So now we have to go back to the first element, emotional awareness and recognition, because you will make all bad decisions, no matter where your heart is, if it's from a place of passion, mm-hmm. even if it's from love, right? You, you sometimes the worst decisions we make at home with our kids That's, is because we yes. love them so much. We shield them from discipline. We shield them from walking into that lion's den. Yeah. So, but that's an emotion, right? That's an emotion that has an intuitive action to say, well, I, I don't want to see my child 
go through something hard, not because for no other reason than I love them so much. And so when you explain it that way to parents, to mothers and fathers, whoever else, they start to get it, right? When we Typically, when we talk about emotions, we're talking about the negative emotions that, that bring us down. But I had to check my enthusiasm for things. I got into trouble a lot, especially in the SEAL teams, because I was so enthusiastic. I loved it so much. I let that enthusiasm cloud better judgment on things. So a good positive emotion can also be detrimental. You know, Absolutely. you're not checking. People take enthusiasm for weakness. You know, and, and but just the decisions you make. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. The I was, I just enjoyed. I loved it so much. We were doing training, and we had a. Maybe I shouldn't tell this story. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Now we gotta hear it. Yeah, you gotta bring it. So okay, the we were working on explosives, and we had set up. A wire explosive in, in the water. We were going to set it off, and something needed to be fixed. I can't remember what it was. And I was like, "I'll go do it." And I ran out and I took there. Was it somebody had a boogie board or a surfboard? And I was like, "Wait, well, yeah, run it out!" Like, and I just you yeah, know, well, the, the boogie board, board and the surfboard with all the you know wait, hundreds I of pounds of paddle out to the bomb. That's the explosives. Now I I was going to have to go out there anyway. Okay, or somebody was, but the spirit in which I did it did not set a good example. Like the, the instructors came back and they're like, well, you're an officer. What are you, what the fuck was that? And I was like, you're right. I, I don't know what to say. But my, the point is, I just was having so much fun. I was like, hey, look at me. Oh, that'll be funny. And I'll run out there with the boogie board. It was ridiculous. But my the Calabunga moment, right? Yeah, it was Calabunga. The point right. is, my emotion was a beautiful, positive emotion, but my intuitive action on it was dumb and dangerous and didn't set good order and discipline. It was a bad example. And so that's, you know, that's, that's what, I, you know, I'm, Bob Proctor, I'm a lot of trouble for that. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Bob Proctor, but Bob Proctor, Bob Proctor you know, a, a fantastic philosopher and, and speaker. And he's, he used to talk about electricity. He says, you can use electricity to cook a man's dinner and you can use electricity to cook a man. You know, you got to understand that there's a, you know, there's a binaural you know, effect from almost everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But again, to, you're exactly right. And, and, and the, even these positive emotions of love will make you do things you shouldn't do if you're not aware of the whole thing, you know? So <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, so again, the, the, the ability to be a leader at home, is in my view exponentially more difficult because of the emotional component, the emotional skin and game. This stuff matters. You, it is hard to be detached emotionally from what's happening to your child, to your wife, to whoever in the family. You have to, but it's hard, and that's why you know that's why kids get spoiled. You know, <laughs> well, it is. But you also, I think that you know, especially when you've got you know mom and dad in the household or mom and mom or dad and dad, whatever the case may be. I mean, you know, I care less, you know, what happens in anybody's house. But when you've got two parents there and you're co-parenting, you know, sometimes it's hard to know when to step aside and let someone else, you know, let your 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 spouse handle something versus you handling it because you just know you're not the right person 
we're in the right frame of mind to handle something. That's very different than what we experience out there in the professional world, where the level of expectation is that, you know, we're in a leadership capacity, our responsibility is to handle something. There's a little bit of a disconnect or just a differentiation between the two different styles or, or contexts of leadership. How difficult is it to know when to step aside? Yeah. And that goes again to leadership in the house. And, and your, your point is exactly right. If you've got two parents, should be co-equal parents, right? Each one of us has our role that we're good at and we, and we focus on that. But the relationship needs to start first between me and my wife. If we're not willing to accept criticism and if we're not willing to give criticism in a very loving and, and careful way because we know how hard it can be, then we're going to make bad decisions for our kids. So at, at least for us, and I, I don't think there's anybody out there there probably are any logical, reasonable person wouldn't disagree with that statement. Yeah. Right. But once again, it's very difficult. Something is charged. My wife says to me, well, you can't handle it like that. Don't tell me how I can't handle it. Right. Uh, yeah. Or we can. You, have, my, you, you weren't over my house. Last I night. was last night. <laughs> <laughs> it's so or, true. But you said are. something. I, I want to make sure that, that we don't lose this point. You said something so smart and it is that you have to know how to dispense with constructive criticism and you also have to know how to take it, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, both sides of that, of that blade can cut and, and can be difficult, but you have to know how to dispense it and also how to receive it the right way in order to, to accomplish the task at hand. And it's got to, and it's got to come from a discussion between, in, in my case, you know, my wife and I, these are the things we need to do as parents before we start correcting our kids. You need to get on the same page. We need to talk about it. Yeah. And then we need to be able to not take it personally. We have to trust each other that we're not trying to hurt each other with this criticism, which yeah. doesn't always work. I don't, I don't, I, nobody's more critical of myself than me. And I always listen to constructive criticism. I listen to even unconstructive criticism, whatever that because it's coming from somewhere, but I hate it. I don't like it when people tell me something. I don't like it at all. And it shows, but the, the dichotomy is, the, the irony is I absorb it and I, and I reflect on it and I act on it. I just, my initial reaction, be in the moment. It's, right. it's just no good. So I have to work on with my wife when she does this and I start to get, I have to think to my, I go through my own process. This is making me very angry right now. I don't like what I'm hearing. My intuitive response is to tell you, stop telling me this. And then what is my behavior that I establish for myself in those specific moments? I tell her, don't look at how I'm reacting. I'm angry right now. Keep going. If you can get past and just trust that I'm not angry at you, I'm just angry hearing this. Please keep coming, right? And now she knows she doesn't like it either. She's like, well, can't you work on that looking like such a raging lunatic when I'm telling you something? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm trying my best. Okay, we got baby steps here. But the point is, that's leadership, right, that doesn't exist as much in the corporate world. Right. right? Two co-equal people having to go through that before we start leading our people, in this case, which is our kids. So yeah, yeah, I'm well, trying to make I it out you. like we got it perfect. Girl, we don't, but. In, in the professional world, right, in the corporate world, what that tends to manifest itself in is in the form of like territorial battles, right? If you have 
you know, folks that are in the C-suite level that are not necessarily the CEO or COO, but are responsible for a division within a corporation. A lot of times when we see that there's not a mutual respect amongst the C-suite constituents, that there's those territorial disputes that arise because, you know, folks don't have the emotional maturity to put differences aside and figure out what's going to be the best for the company. It becomes what's going to be best for me or my department versus I mean, what's going to be best for the company. You're exactly right. I mean, it, it, so that is the correlation then that you just made because there could be a power struggle between me and my wife, for example, if we let that happen. Right. So, so you're right that, that you, I stand corrected. There is a great correlation to business just based on your example. Yeah, it's, it, it just, it's, it's contextually just a little bit different, but we see yeah. it. I know you see it in yeah. your engagements. Yeah. Well, listen, my man, I, I'm, I want, first of all, you have to promise you're coming back. We're going to get you and Jimmy because there's so much more to oh, dive yeah. into. There's a lot. There yeah, is. <laughs> and, and Errol, there's such a thirst and an appetite out there, not just on the corporate side, but just in society in general for thought leadership from the perspective that you're delivering it, right? Acknowledging right. emotion, but not being ruled by it. I think there's such an incredible opportunity for us to continue to get that message out there and to introduce people to the Leader 193 platform. Can you talk a little bit about how they can get in touch with you, where they can find more information about Leader 193? Yeah, I sure can. Thanks, Steve. So our website is pretty good, leader193.com. And what you'll see is all the services we offer very, I think, clearly laid out, you know, from our our uh, our uh, lowest cost item to our highest cost item. And if I could take the opportunity, and this is, and Ron, I appreciate you going through the, the course because clearly he, he went it. through it. I know he did because he's yeah. saying things. I'm like, that was from Element 5, what he just said. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I appreciate That's that. A, you felt notes, my friend. I, well, I take it very seriously, so thank you. Well, I appreciate it. And, and the book is on the way, by the way. So thanks for that as thank well. Thank you. But the, so that's, this has been our new, our new launch, right? What is a, how can you get part of the leader one nine three way and not have to pay $6,000, right? So we have, what we did was we have the leader of the, the leader one nine three online Academy. And it's essentially the same program that our live clients go through minus the one-on-one -on -one live calls. Right. And so it's, you know, it's probably around four hours of material, probably 50 videos, but it is the exact process that we've laid out. So that's, and, and I, I think you've got that at a very reasonable price point at about 250 bucks. You know, I'm, I'm being encouraged. That increased. If, if you get, get in the leader193.com platform, you're stealing from Errol and his family at 249. I'm just telling you. Correct. I think you're right. But it's new. We just we just launched it. We want people to get excited about it. We want to make it, you know, our, our target was there's a lot of people who would love to go through this thing who can't afford it. Let's let's get it to the people who really want it and get it at a price point that look, 250 is is cheap, but it's not nothing, right? right. You, know, you, you drop 250, you're like, all right, I'm not gonna not do this thing. You know, right. so that's that was our thought process. Trust me, I've got people telling me you, you gotta bump it up to a thousand. Maybe, but not right now. But anyway, that's that's where that's kind of the new thing we're excited about. So our website will 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 tell you all about that. We are excited. It, November 11th to 13th this year, we've got an open forum that we're doing. It's going to be here in Colorado, about an hour outside of Aspen, and it is Wim Hof Retreat and Leadership Intersection. So it's 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 process and wellness. 
We're going we're gonna to talk about the Leader 193 way. We're going to get into ice baths. We're going to be introduced to this breathing technique. We're going to be out in nature doing things. We're going to be journaling. We're going to be sharing how to, all this applies, how to practice it. It's going to be a super powerful event. So the details on that are also on leader193.com. That's going to be a nice three-day event that we're, we're pretty excited about. And I understand you you have a rattlesnake on the menu? <laughs> you got it. You got to get. You got to go catch it, and then just Ooh. fold it in half, and then just swallow it down. It's there like, you go. Done. Yeah. Sushi. You can wash it down with a little snake venom. That's right. Enjoy it. Beautiful thing. No, bro. You piqued my curiosity. I got. I'm looking at the calendar. The minute we uh, we end the episode here, I want to take on. my availability. I'd love to come out for that. Like, I just I have this incredible um, respect and admiration for, for both you and Jim, what you've done and what you're doing most importantly, right? Because we can't change what you've done. That's already done. But what you're doing, I think is more important as we look forward into the future, not only for business and culture, but for the country at large, Errol, we, we are in desperate need of thought leaders like you, like Jim, who are willing to do this because you, uh, you have this, this DNA level commitment to making people better. And, and providing them a path to their very best selves and it's something that Ron and I can acutely identify with. And so I thank you for the opportunity because we look forward to strategically partnering with you guys along the way. Yep. Likewise. Well, I appreciate all that. And this was great fun. And yeah, we left a lot on the table, so we'll have to do it again. Amen to that, Errol. Thank you so much. All right, boys. Ron, any final questions for Errol? I uh, know I'm, I'm square for now. We'll cover it in the next one, but uh, I appreciate it, Daryl, as you know. So I look forward to our next conversation and thank you. Likewise, Dal. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, guys, as we wrap here, make sure you follow Jim, Ron, and myself on all the social media channels. We are out there. You know, we'd love to connect with you wherever you are, wherever you're most comfortable, whatever platform you spend the most time on. Let's make sure we connect. We share, you know, lots of content amongst the four of us. And I think there's tremendous opportunity out there to continue to grow the community. In the meantime, we've got to step up to stand out, guys, and we're out. Thanks for sharing time on Icons, Influencers, and Inspirations. We're out.